0: Just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? And then measure the percent who answer very disappointed. Mm. And after benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow most easily always get more than 40% very disappointed. Mm
1: Welcome to Conversations with Bacon. I hope you're all safe and well throughout the the current crisis. Um, Just a quick reminder, my new book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams is out. We just won the Business Book Awards, which I'm thrilled about. But much more importantly, I want to get into our interview today. So I'm thrilled to bring on Raul Vora, who is the CEO and co-founder of Superhuman. How are you doing, Raul? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, I'm thrilled to have you on here, and I'm thrilled to have you on here for not just superhuman. We're going to get into a whole bunch of different things here today, but I'd love to first of all go through your go through the rap sheet. So, in 2002, you were at Cambridge University in the UK. Um, you went on in 2004 to be a game designer at is it Jagex. Is that how you pronounce that? Yagex? Jagex. Jagex. Yeah, like that. Jagex. There we go. Where you worked on RuneScape, which is one of the most popular uh, role-playing games out there, and I think you were working on questing there from what I read. Um, And then in 2006, you were the president of Cambridge University Entrepreneurs, which is a really neat student-run kind of business creation competition. Um, From there, you went on in 2007 to be co-founder of Mojo, uh, which was a a web application uh, around crowdsourcing business ideas, which was sold to Cancer Research in the UK. Uh, in 2010, this is where I think a lot of people may know you from is where you were the CEO and co-founder of Reportive, which was a really neat uh, bit of software for showing contacts in someone's inbox. And that was acquired by LinkedIn. And then you co-founded Superhuman uh, and and your CEO there. And that happened in 2014. Um, And throughout this time, you know, you've been an investor and yeah, send with us, easy post, place of various other pieces as well. So you've got a pretty comprehensive bit of background going on right there. <laughs> so. It's been a fun decade for sure. <laughs> so I first met you um, at an event called The Lobby in Hawaii, which is a, a business event. And I think I met you, we were having a few drinks in the bar and you mentioned Superhuman. And my reaction to to this was, I think, I imagine it's like a lot of people where you've fundamentally produced a product that, enables people to be much more efficient with email. And I think a lot of people think they've got email down or Gmail does everything that they need to do. I have subsequently become a superhuman customer and I love it. And I've been telling everybody about it. And I was a little suspicious at first around claims of, you know, being faster and more efficient, but it really is. I mean, the the application is super quick. It keeps me very, very focused on, on, on bucketing my email into logical groups and achieving inbox zero, which was a long lost dream for many years. So, you know, it's a really neat, a really neat platform. So why don't you give us a bit of background around how superhuman came into, into life? Sure.
0: So to understand the history behind superhuman and our approach, we have to wind the clock back by about 10 years. So in Mm. 2010, I started a company called Reportive. And we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. Essentially, when people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets and linked to their social profiles. And we grew rapidly. And two years later, we were acquired Mm. by LinkedIn. And during those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, right. using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still so slow. Right. It's it's <laughs> crazy. And on top of all of that, still not working properly offline. Right. Now In addition, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline and made all of them dramatically worse. So mm. We decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less. and An experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox. An experience, right. of course, that just worked offline, so you could be productive anywhere. An experience that had the best Gmail plugins built in natively, and yet was somehow still subtle, minimal and visually gorgeous, and so with right. that we built Superhuman, and you know, hopefully, as as you would feel today, it's now the fastest email experience in the world, and we have many customers who are getting through their inbox twice as fast as before, and even oh, yeah. more who are seeing Inbox Zero for the first time in years.
1: Yeah, it, it really is phenomenal, um, and I, I can just as one happy customer, I'm definitely getting through my. Email way quicker. And like many people listening to this, I get a ton of email and there's a constant anxiety about being too slow to respond. Um, the, you know, I'm one of those folks where I, I'm actually, I just want the company to succeed because I don't want it to go away, which is a common thing with a lot of Google products. Um, but what's really interesting to me about Superhuman is the product itself is very good. But I think part of the reason why it's so good is because. There's been a lot of thought has gone into the psychology of how people think and how people work. And this is when I started learning a little bit about your flow approach and your and your philosophy. There's a great video that you did, a great video online where you spoke at the Andreessen Horowitz event. Why do you give us an overview of what this flow philosophy is? Because I'd like to dig into that to paint the picture around how this has influenced the design and the approach behind superhuman.
0: At Superhuman, we make
1: software like it's a game.
0: And most software companies worry about what users want or what they need. But if you think about it, nobody needs a game to exist. There are Hmm. no requirements, per se. Yet when you make software like it's a game, you don't worry about what users want or need. No, instead, you obsess over how they feel. I've been designing games since I was a kid, And as it turns out, one of the most critical parts of game design is this concept of flow. Flow is what we would colloquially call being in the zone, the state of being fully immersed in and fully enjoying the activity that we're doing.
1: Right. And, you know, a lot of programmers, for example, will talk about when they're in the zone, and a distraction comes in and it can take a long time to kind of get back into that. I think a lot of people see um, email as a transitory thing that happens multiple times throughout the day. Like you dig into your inbox in the morning, you hop on a call, you get back into it. You maybe check in e- emails in between calls if you finish a little early. How, what has been some of the approaches that you've taken to maintaining that kind of flow for something that could be conceivably a very transitory habit for people throughout their day?
0: Well, to understand how to create flow, we first need to break it down and define it. And fortunately for us, it has been heavily researched by psychologists for decades. And technically speaking, flow is a psychological state of mind, and it has six key components. So I can just rattle them off and then we can look at the conditions for making it. So the components are, number one, it is an intense and focused concentration on the present. Number two, flow is so absorbing that we don't think about the future or worry about the past. Number three, flow is so demanding that we don't care what others think about us. Number four, it's so easy that we always know what to do next. Number five, this is my favorite one, it is so powerful that it can alter our subjective experience of time. Time can either flash by in an instant or stretch out forever. And right. then six, and this is the most powerful one, flow is so rewarding that the activity becomes intrinsically motivating. And there's a whole right. body of research on what intrinsic motivation is versus extrinsic motivation. But the right. short summary is that We are intrinsically motivated when we are doing things because we find them inherently interesting and satisfying versus extrinsic motivation
1: when we're doing them to achieve some kind of external goal. Right. And I definitely want to get into the rewards and the intrinsic rewards piece. In a second, because I think that's really interesting. And you gave an example um, in I think your session of of kids who were drawing, and some kids were, you know, had a potential reward behind that, and some kids didn't. And the ones that didn't have the reward uh, were were more engaged. They drew more because there there, there was an, there was more of an intrinsic desire around it. But before we get into that a little bit, when people are in the zone, one of the things that I think is interesting about about superhuman is that there's this notion of split inboxes. So for example, I have all of my client emails in one inbox and I I have the ability now to be able to say I've got 10, 15 emails from that client today that I need to go through. Once I'm through them, I achieve inbox zero. So to what role would you say in your experience does scope play a role in here? Because I get the impression that just looking at a small piece of your inbox gives you that sense of completion that that sense of reward which is why that split inbox approach uh, approach tends to work would you say that scope is a critical piece of what helps people get into the zone
0: absolutely and we're actually touching on a lot of different factors of game design here so you mm. mentioned completion and it's actually different to the field of game design that focuses on flow but we can flip for a second right. just because it's so fascinating but, mm. but when we talk about rewards I don't mean to say that games shouldn't have rewards. Obviously, games should have rewards, but they shouldn't be the only thing. And one of the most interesting types of rewards, beyond the obvious stuff that we've seen in technology companies over the last decade, beyond points, levels, trophies, and badges, is, as you identified, the reward of completion. And the reason why this reward in particular is so powerful is that in real life, very few things are ever done, and that <laughs> sense of completion is so vanishingly rare that when you finish a game or when you hit inbox zero, it feels special. It feels different, and it feels unique. Uh, yep. and so yeah, scope is a hundred percent a part of it. Um but to flip well, back, I- to, to flow, if you want to sort of talk about the conditions, because,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, I, th- I think it's really interesting. This is one of the least understood aspects of product design. So I just described how, how flow feels and the experience of being in flow. And those same researchers who identified how that feels have also identified how you create it. And this is where it begins to become actionable. Hmm. So there are five conditions to flow. Number one, we have to know what to do next. Number two, we have to know how to do it always. Number three, we must be free from distractions. And all of that wraps up into the split inbox example that you gave. Number four, we must get clear and immediate feedback. That comes to things like the UI being immediately responsive and being the fastest experience in the world. And number five, and this is the hardest of all, and actually leads to a counterintuitive conclusion. We must feel a balance between challenge and skill. If we perceive the activity to be too hard, we feel anxious. But if we perceive the activity to be too easy, we feel bored. And so right. there's this very careful balancing act. And the conclusion in Superhuman is that in parts of the product, we have actually deliberately made it harder to use so that users are more
1: consistently experiencing flow right right it's 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 fascinating to me as well because um and, and again I'd like to come back to the uh, to the complexity piece because I think that is a really interesting element of product design because there is so much focus these days on on simplifying onboarding and simplifying um, uh, product design to a point where it's all about removing roadblocks and it being intuitive but Coming back to the gamification for a second, because a lot of people who I work with, especially when around building communities, um, gamification is kind of it has this. You know, this is the this is the uh, the wizard at the end of the road of the end of the yellow brick road. That if we can gamify something, it will be will get the best possible outcome. And usually, people equate gamification to badges and a visual representation of something or some kind of of reward. From what I've seen. That kind of gamification tends to work reasonably well for people who, who have kind of like an intrinsic collecting instinct. Like this works very well in gaming. People like to collect trophies and things like that. But people ultimately will get bored of that to a, to a reasonable degree. What would you say when it comes to gamification are the most critical things that product designers should be focusing on? Because it strikes me that there is like there's the there's the reward piece and the 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 statement of the challenge and and, and there's the completion and then the reward piece. But gamification can manifest in many different ways. What would you say the things that people aren't doing that they should be doing most when it comes to applying game theory to their products? So I think that when gamification does work, and
0: you gave the example of actual video games, it is because the underlying experience was already a game. Right. And when it's just gamification, let's say you take any business application that you might think of and you add on the surface what might look like gaming elements, you know, you mentioned trophies, for example, it doesn't really work that well. And this Mm. is a perhaps surprising outcome that we came to because if you again go 10 years ago, you'll remember that gamification was a really big deal. I remember Kleiner Perkins at the time saying that more than half of all of their consumer pitches mentioned
1: gamification in some way. Right. Yeah. The magic word, bingo.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. And I I think what we didn't understand collectively is the reason why points, levels, trophies, badges, etc. work is because they're part of a much bigger overall picture. And so I'm often asked, well, what is a unifying theory of game design? And after studying it intensely for a while, what I can say is that there is no unifying theory of game design. And Mm. instead, to design good games, we have to draw upon multiple and disparate fields, things like interaction design, storytelling, mathematics, and psychology. Mm. Now, because it's so intrinsic to how we build our product and how we run superhuman. It's something that internally, we spend a lot of time studying and talking about. And I've actually managed to squeeze it down to the five most important factors to consider. And they are goals, emotions, toys, control, and the last one that we've already discussed, flow.
1: Right. What would you say, though? Because I can imagine some some of my listeners who are hearing this and thinking one of the reasons why game design tends to work is that even in massively open world games, there is a, a there is often a very linear um, progression to a degree that there is a train that's on some tracks, and even if you break that out into multiple different branches, and you have you you tend to have individual quests for those different branches. Um, but when you take something such as email, there's a there there is a linear flow. For example, from selecting a message to replying to the message and clicking send to send it. But the way in which people select messages that they're going to re- that they're going to respond to, the way in which people are going to send new messages out there, it's 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 so variable. How would you apply game theory to non-linear environments such as that? <sighs> Well, I
0: actually do think that email and many other business tasks are closer to the open world game that you're describing Mm. than maybe it first seems to begin with. Mm. So in game design, there is this notion of the game loop. What is the loop that the player goes around and through going around it feels satisfaction, becomes more powerful? explores more of the world and so on. So let's take the example of any of these open world games. It could could be a single player game like Breath of the Wild, or it could be an MMO like World of Warcraft. It doesn't really matter. They all have essentially the same structure, which is you start off in a relatively small area, relatively small scope, relatively underpowered. You meet someone, gives you a quest, asks you to go to some other area. You finish that quest. In going to that other area, you meet other people who give you more quests. And so the thing exponentially unfolds. And as you go around the loop, of course, your character becomes more powerful. And if the game's any good, it's also telling a decent narrative along the way. I think email is, in fact, very similar. You start off with... Uh, a really long inbox. And as, as you may know, when you start using Superhuman, we'll get you very close to Inbox Zero so you can right. actually achieve it. Um, you achieve it. In doing so, you've knocked off perhaps 50 or 100 quests. But what you've actually done there is you've emailed other people. And then those people are going to email you back. And so the narrative right. continues. Now, in some cases... The narratives will actually be a side story or a side quest, and they'll just fade away. But in some other cases, those narratives could be really big. And along the way, you're becoming more proficient at using the tool. You are becoming Hmm. more expert at superhuman, kind of like leveling up a character in an RPG. And so I think right. there are significant parallels there. And it doesn't just apply to our product and to email. You can design any business software like this, I think, to mirror that structure.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting about that as well is, um, and, and I want to get into in a little bit about the product market fit, because I think what's really interesting about Superhuman is how you've really zoned in on your audience. And you went through a product market fit um, um exploration shall we say to 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 get there but it seems like with tools especially in business tools there are there are kind of personalized methods and workflows that people go through and then there is what the tool does and especially i think with tools such as email tools because there are so many different types of of workflows, I'd apply the same thing to, let's say, JIRA or issue management in an engineering context. People have radically different ways in which they manage engineering projects. And these tools then become so generic um, that they because they need to be able to support all of these different ways of working. And then they become incredibly complicated to use. How? What would you say is the role of being opinionated about this? Because one of the things that is interesting about Superhuman that um, some people who listen to this may not know is that when you sign up, you go through a consultation. Like I got on the phone with a guy called Cameron who works with you, who was fu- wonderful, and Cameron showed me his recommendation in how you should use it, and and it was opinionated, and I like that, but some people may find that off-putting. So, what is would you say is the role in? product design, but also in this kind of gamification approach or a gamified approach to being opinionated about that workflow. This is a very fine line. It's tough to get right, (laughs) but it is also
0: critical to get it right. Yeah. And our philosophy has always been this. We do have opinions on how you can do your email twice as fast. And we also now have plenty of data to show that it works. So we were actually just doing this analysis and it turns out that 36% of users hit inbox zero within the onboarding, and more than half of all users hit it within four hours of starting to use Superhuman. Right. Now that said, let's take an example. We strongly advise, I'm sure Cameron did this, that you archive your email when you're done with it, and that you push to maintain inbox zero. And we've made that workflow incredibly fast. But if there is a part of your email workflow that feels very personal to you. For example, instead of archiving, maybe you're the kind of person who wants to file everything by moving it to a label. Our promise right. to you is that we will make your personal workflow incredibly fast too. And this is where right. it touches on that challenge that you mentioned, with JIRA where surely this can't work. The more workflows you try and make incredibly fast, the more of a bloated product you get. And to an extent, that's true. But I think with certain types of user interface innovation, we can actually avoid this problem. Mm. Even to this day, Superhuman has precisely the same number of buttons in its main interface as it did four years ago when I sketched it out. It has three buttons on the desktop product. And yet it can do so much. And that's because we've innovated in terms of how you interact with the product. We have this thing called superhuman command, where all you have to remember is one keyboard shortcut, and that's command K. And then you type in anything that you might want to do. And through that, you explore a rapidly increasing universe of features and functionality. And that's just one way that you can support lots of different personal workflows without making
1: a product look or feel cluttered. And it's, it's deceptively innovative because I think a lot of people may look at Superhuman and think, well, what is it? There's barely anything on the screen. But of course, it's all hidden away. Uh, that, 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 um, well, not hidden, that's the wrong word. The, the, the functionality is there, but it, it's, it's accessed in a way that doesn't result in toolbars and toolbars and toolbars of, of, of buttons, right? and which I'm presuming was very intentional by design. Yes. So we have a certain set
0: of product philosophies, and the two that are relevant here are, number one, visually minimal yet surprisingly powerful, and number two, there when you want it and out of the way when you don't. And as we're doing user interface design We're constantly running potential designs through the filters of these philosophies and asking ourselves, does it really work? Does it really hit the bar that we've been holding ourselves to? And so there's one feature that's upcoming, our most requested feature, which is an incredibly fast keyboard-shortcut-driven way to create calendar events. Right. And we've tooled and retooled and worked on this so many different times, because it's actually really hard to take something as traditionally heavy as creating a calendar event and make it feel lightweight and super fast like the rest of Superhuman does. But right. the good news is in recent days, I think we've got there. So over the next month or so, listeners can can look out for that. So we've, we've got this yeah, really cool way of creating calendar
1: events coming up. That's fantastic. Now, before we get on to... Um, some of the product market pieces. Um, one of the things that's always struck me about email is that it's, um, it's a pretty solitary experience, right? It's me with my inbox. And often there are conversations that happen outside of discussions. So for example, you know, someone may email me and say, you know, we'd like to hop on a phone call. I might copy my assistant in who will then coordinate getting that on the calendar. But maybe I want to communicate with my assistant outside of the sender sending me the email to say this is not super important right now or we need to do this in this next week this is critically important how do you see this the kind of collaborative and the social element of that because it seems like a lot of collaboration when it comes to email tends to exist outside of email it exists in slack and other places i think this is
0: a really interesting question and one where our perspective is in constant evolution there are companies of course who, into their products, have built channels that aren't email for comment-style communication. So, for example, Front lets you comment on a thread and invoke your EA or the rest of your customer support team. And I think for those use cases, it maybe makes sense. And certainly for support, it, it makes sense. But for the EA one, it starts to become questionable. Because I'm looking for a really good philosophical answer. So why shouldn't that be an email? I certainly understand why you might want to use right. Slack because of the whole ecosystem they've built around uh, notifications and being on every platform and the way yeah. that the, yeah. the social contracts that we have with Slack is perfect for, here's a quick one-liner, I need to get a response from you exactly. uh, fairly yeah. rapidly. but. I have an EA and most of the interaction that I have with my EA when it comes to scheduling simply takes place over email. I will reply right. to the person. I'll CC the EA on the thread, but then I will also send them a follow-up email uh, simply by forwarding. So I'll just hit F in superhuman and I'll say things yeah. like, this can be a 15 minute call or this can be a one hour in-person meeting or whatever the, the relevant thing is. Yeah, and I simply yeah. haven't yet found a compelling reason why that shouldn't be an email,
1: right? And and arguably, you could say um, without delving too deeply into superhuman nerdery for people who are less familiar with, what, with how the product works, you could set up a snippet to very easily, you know, this one needs to be later, this one needs to be earlier. You know, there's there's functionality built in for doing that. Um, so, so um, one of the things I think is really fascinating here as well. Is, is this product market fit piece. Um, I was working with one of my clients, which is when I, and they mentioned this, and they pointed me to a piece that you wrote. Um, every company who is building a product is trying to figure out how to target and design their product for the optimal buying audience. And you went and did some interesting work in this. Um, and, um, you know, at, at, a, at a very high level summary, and I'd love you to kind of... Kind of fill in the gaps you you asked your audience, your existing users, would they be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed if Superhuman went away, and then you performed some segmentation around the people who'd be very disappointed, and then you did some analysis on some of the other feedback that you received from your audience to determine what people loved and what was really compelling to them, but also for example who what what the the somewhat disappointed folks um, what they would love to see. And one of the outcomes of this was a mobile app, which was really interesting because you said in the piece that, you know, you were very focused on desktop, um, and that gave you a good insight into, into what was next. And one of the things that you mentioned in that piece as well was, you know, you've got to be careful with, with this kind of needs analysis because sometimes people can send you down a path, creating features that really don't have a broad appeal to, to your target audience. Just walk us through, you, you, the the article which I'll link to in, in when we when we release this um, goes in, into this in detail. But I'd love to get a little bit of a behind the scenes sense of of how you approach this because this was a very methodical way of thinking about product market fit.
0: Absolutely, and I think this is
1: a reflection of how we
0: do things at Superhuman. We have a framework for most everything, especially for right. products market fit. Uh, and maybe we should start here. For those that don't know, products market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed. And the lack of it is also the number one reason why startups fail. But hmm. until very recently, it was hard to actually define it in a quantitative way. And that's a big challenge at Superhuman where we were facing a multi-year build. And I needed a way of explaining to the team that we weren't ready for launch. And so that was when we came up with this framework that we call the product market fit engine. And as you were alluding to, it gives you a way not only to define product market fit, but a metric to measure it and a methodology to systematically increase it. Right. So I think what might be helpful is let's cover real quick the definitions that folks were using prior because what they lacked... In quantitativeness, they made up in color and character, and I think it's uh, it's important to cover that before you jump to the quantitative measure. Yes. So, for yes. example, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, would simply say it's when you made something that people want, and Sam mm-hmm. Altman would say it's when users spontaneously tell other people to use your product. But it's perhaps Mark Andreessen who has the most vivid definition. He would say, you can always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users aren't growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. The press reviews are kind of blah, and the sales cycle takes too damn long. But, he said, you can always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are constantly calling you about your hot new thing. Investors are staking out your house and money is piling up in your checking account. Right Now, this is a really great, vivid and compelling definition, but it does have one issue. And that is that it is a lagging indicator. By the time investors are staking out your house, you already have products market fit. And so right. this was back in April 2017 when I was searching for a metric to measure products market fit and for a methodology to systematically increase it. And so right. I searched high and low, I read everything I could find, I spoke with all the experts, and I found Sean Ellis who had come across a leading indicator. And not just a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and predictive. So like you said, just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? And then measure the percent who answer very disappointed. Mm. And after benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow most easily always get more than 40% very disappointed. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, then you have initial products market fit. Now, the work that we did then builds a methodology on top of that. And the short, short summary is, if you simply build what people are asking you to build, you'll end up with a muddled and a complex product right. that probably isn't for anybody in particular. But if, on the other hand, you simply build the things that you think are worth building, which may very well be the things that people want, especially the the power users of your products want, you won't be systematically increasing the audience that it applies to. And so what the right. methodology gives you is a way to constantly keep those two forces in balance
1: and to consistently increase the set of people who love your product. Right. Well, what's interesting as well about this, when I read your piece, is, is you crafted this, this, um, this kind of persona which is Nicole is a hardworking professional who deals with many people. For example, she may be an executive founder, manager in business development. She works long hours, often at the weekends. And what was fascinating to me, and is probably a good indicator that you've done this well at Superhumans, when I read that, I saw myself in that persona, which by definition means that the product, for me speaking very personally, fits my needs, fits my, uh, what I define as value. But what comes out of this is designing a product for a a much narrower group of people, right? Um, And I think if you look at good marketeers or you look at good consultants, everybody always says specialize, specialize, specialize. But I can appreciate that when you're an executive running a business, when when you're running a startup, especially in Silicon Valley, where everything is about growth, 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 limiting or being very targeted in your audience seems massively... It doesn't seem intuitive. How, how would you, if you were talking to someone who's listening to this, who who is a founder, who's in a similar position that you've been in, Raul, how would you address those concerns to them that, we're, well, we're only focusing on a much narrower group of people, what happens if they don't buy? You know? I would say that think of any
0: large brands that you admire and respect. And ask yourself, how does their growth engine work? And I would argue that in nine times out of 10, if not more, the growth Mm. engine relies on word of mouth and people aspiring to be like other people. And that's where the concept of Nicole comes from. She is our high expectation customer, which is a marketing term, but it essentially means the archetypal user that most of your users aspire to be like because they see them as clever, judicious, or insightful. And if you can build the perfect software for her, then your marketing will happen for you. And as a side effect, it will happen for free. You'll have the most inspirational people who drive the greatest aspiration using your product and loving it. And that is actually how most consumer software, at the very least, grows to success. The other reason why I would argue it's important is where we face ourselves now. It now seems all but certain that due to this pandemic, we're headed into a recession. And so yes. a, a quick quick timestamp for our listeners, it's currently Friday, April 10th. And at this point, a recession seems inevitable. And yeah. so now yeah. more than ever, the companies that have perhaps a small but growing number of users, but where those users really love the product, will outperform and outlast those companies that maybe have more users, but those users have less of an emotional connection to those products.
1: Mm, mm. And I do actually want to get into the recession piece, because I know you've, you are it's not out yet, but you're working on a, on a piece about this, and it'll be out by the time this show comes out. Um but i think what you're saying as well really gets into like as a consultant when i work again when i work with um with companies the vast majority i don't do any marketing the vast majority of people who come to me about my services it's all referrals it's all people who have have uh, you know somebody else who i've worked with and said you know jono i think can help you with what you do or it's someone who i already know and has been following my work and those referrals are so powerful and i guess what you're saying here rahul is if you build something that's targeted to a demographic, you can meet their needs, deliver extreme value, and then they will go out and, and spread the word, right? They will, they will sing your praises and they will bring in bring in customers and the power of that referral adds to the strength of it, but that can also add to the expectations, right? And I guess that's another reason why it's probably good to align it, because then at least the expectations is probably a very similar audience. Is that correct?
0: Yes. I think people will tend to refer people who are like themselves. And in some cases, it can actually not necessarily reduce the expectations, but provide you the company with more leeway. I know that when I've been referred a brand, I'm more receptive to the idea that, well, maybe I should give this more time or I'm just going to give it a go because this person that I respect seems so into whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah no absolutely. How would you say when you've got um the well let me be completely blunt the, the I think the big fear that I have with with products and I would include superhuman in this just based upon seeing software and services as they tend to evolve and, and grow is that they do become slower, they do become cluttered, they do try to be all things to all people um and this can especially be the case when there are more cooks in the kitchen there are you know when when you bring in more investors or they get acquired by a company it can take the 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 product design elegance away um, because it's all about appealing to a much larger market how do you how are you planning on balancing that because what would you focus so explicitly on speed and on minimalism but with great features how do you keep that discipline there as the company grows
0: I think that we need UI that allows us to add features. That doesn't necessarily mean adding things that are visible. And that's where things like superhuman command come in. So without that, it's kind of a non-starter. It is, to your point, essentially impossible to add functionality. So once you've figured out the non-visible way of adding functionality... You then move on to the next challenge, which arguably is harder, which is the conceptual simplicity. So once you've solved visible simplicity, it's then conceptual simplicity. Mm. And for that, I think you just need to constantly, over and over again, refine. Uh, So we, for example, sent out a product update today. It was an update to our iOS app. You can now share any conversation into a notes app or a to-do app. And that's a good example where every single sentence was written and rewritten north of 20 times. And that is the Mm. case in every single piece of messaging that we create. And we're doing that to keep the complexity of the concepts that we have to their core, to their minimum. And I think with those two you can start to get ahead of the, the risk that you outlined. And then, of course, the third thing is uh, don't sell your company. If you're worried about what happens to a <laughs> an acquirer, keep control.
1: Right, exactly. Well, the other thing as well, and I, and I promise you uh, good listeners that I'm not on commission and or that Raul's got any uh, compromising imagery of me uh, that he's threatening to blackmail me with. But one of the things that I thought was impressive as well is um, when you sign up to Superhuman, and this, I think, gets to the philosophy that you are applying across the product and across other elements of what you do. When, but when you sign up for Superhuman, you get emails that come to you and each email will say, here is a feature. There'll be a little animated GIF. It comes from you. I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously automated, but if you reply to the email, I know it goes to you. And what's interesting is I've read every one of those emails. And a lot of us, we get these automated email sequences that kind of come through and they get buried and you don't read them. And the read time is usually extremely low. But what I found interesting, and I've actually been talking to a bunch of my clients about this, is the emails that Superhuman has sent out, I've read every single one of them. And I think part of the reason for that, and I was actually surprised when I looked into it, that those emails go out every day because the general perceived wisdom around email is that if you send people too much email, such as a daily email, they'll get sick of it and they um, and they won't, not only will they not read it, but they'll unsubscribe or and they'll get upset about it. It was the opposite experience that I had with Superhuman. And I was thinking about this and it struck me that I think it's because, because the product, you do need to know how to use it. For example, you need to know what the commands are. Um, and while the, 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 the command kind of pop up is 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 you you don't have to type things in exactly you can make mistakes, you can type in individual letters and it's very intuitive in how it works. but you do need to know what you're doing so by definition, the emails that came through with an individual tip one thing that you can learn it's very short email it's very easily easy to read. I can read it in just a second. It means there's high value there. And that is one of the things that w- that kind of blew me away. So I'm, I'm assuming that you apply this philosophy to to everything, um, and I think if you can maintain that as you grow, it's going to be it's going to be a, a refreshing change from what we often see with companies. That's certainly the goal. This reminds me of a
0: conversation that Brian Chesky, the Airbnb CEO, had with Reid Hoffman on his podcast "Masters of Scale," where his advice to founders was. Identify the non scalable thing that makes your company special and hold mm. on to it for as long as you can. Or no, no. another way that he put this forward was think about what the four out of 10 experience would be. Think about the five and the six right. out of 10 experience. Now, how do you deliver the 11 out of 10 experience? Right. Uh, but with the email campaigns, there's something very specific going on there. Uh, And there's actually a lot of pieces of the user journey that come together to make it work. So I think number one, the first thing is you're paying for the product. Uh, There are no freebies. Everybody pays $30 a month to use and leverage and enjoy Superhuman. And it's a very specific price point. It's not prohibitively expensive. Every single one of our customers can by definition afford it, but it's also not cheap and the right. price point encourages you to want to get the most value out of the product and i think that's, that's a part plug, yeah, of why yeah. why you read the emails i think the second yeah. thing there is the the onboarding uh, you've met cameron cameron's awesome yeah. hopefully you feel yes. like you have a friend at the company uh yes. and i imagine he did a good job of And this is the third and key part, setting expectations, which is, hey, listen, our CEO Rahul is going to send you an email every single day. And each time he's going to show you another cool thing that you can do to get faster through using Superhuman. And so I think the commitment of paying, I think the onboarding and having a friend at the company, and I think having the
1: expectations set is what makes folks want to read those emails on a daily basis. And I think this is what's so refreshing about the approach that you've taken: is the world is so cluttered up with um, attempts at shortcuts and um, trying to drive growth in a quick and cheap way. It's actually refreshing to see a company that's trying to do it the right way. Uh, and that's, but that, like I say, brings me the fear of. I hope it doesn't get squeezed out, and uh, and you know, um, but. I, I'm I'm confident that, that under your leadership role, it, it won't. Um, and also, by the way, what doesn't hurt Cameron's success in onboarding me was the fact that he also has an appreciation for the finest art form, which is of course heavy metal music. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we had something in common. Absolutely. Now, before we before we before we wrap up, um, I do want to ta- come back to the um, you, the point you re- you referenced earlier on about. Um, the, the role of running a startup in a recession, as you said, you know, as we record this, we're in the midst of the Corona, um, the coronavirus uh, outbreak that's occurring. And um, what, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this, what you're seeing right now as we record this in terms of the likelihood of a recession and from your perspective as a, as a, as a founder, what you're planning on doing and how you want to approach this moving forward.
0: Well, as COVID-19 runs its course, it now appears certain, I think, that we will enter an economic recession. At the Mm. start of this year, the chances were perhaps about 20%, according to most analysts. Five, six weeks ago, they were about 50%. And at this point, it seems all but certain. And what I've noticed is for startups who are burning through cash, there are essentially two forms of advice. And one is to do whatever it takes to get to profitability. And the other is to do whatever it takes to get to a certain amount of runway. And an example of the latter is uh, Steve Blank has an excellent article that's making the rounds, which is advising startups on how to get to at least 24 months of runway. And I should caveat everything that I'm about to say with, if you have less than 24 months of runway, ignore everything I'm about to say. And stop listening <laughs> and like go and read Steve's article because literally every single minute counts. And right. you know, yeah. you can't reacting You will
1: Won't be offended. Turn it off. That's fine. Go go and do that. Yeah.
0: Right. But let's say you've done that. So you've you've made the hard choices. You now have 24 months of runway. Which of these approaches makes sense? Which is optimal? Uh, and I would actually argue that neither is. So let's have a mm. have a dive in and see why. So getting to profitability will feel good. It will give you leverage. You'll never need to raise funding unless you want to. And that ability to walk away is key to raising funding on great terms. However, right. it will mean that you have to hire and build slowly. And if you raised money from venture investors, then you are almost certainly in a big market that at least somebody else thought could support a massive outcome. And whilst right. you focus on profitability if it's a good market, then a venture-backed competitor will invest more aggressively. And if they're any good, they will benefit from compounding momentum like brand recognition and network effects. And then if that competitor survives the recession, they'll end up significantly further ahead. And so that's probably not the right choice for the vast majority of venture-backed companies. But Hmm. on the other hand, picking a certain amount of runway, like for example, 24 months, isn't ideal either. Right. right. Well, what happens if you miscalculated and it turns out that maybe you only had 18 months of runway? Yeah, exactly. Or what happens if in 24 months, the markets for capital is even worse? And I don't think that either of these are far-fetched scenarios. No team executes perfectly. And this recession right. could last two to four years. And you ask me what I'm seeing today. Well, from my perspective as an angel investor, I've already seen early stage valuations drop 20 to 30%. And I've even seen term sheets being pulled, which is behavior that was unthinkable as recently as just two or three months ago. Right, exactly. So the question becomes, well, what strategy is optimal? And for many startups, I think this is the optimal strategy. Choose how much runway you want to maintain. And this is a question of corporate and personal risk. It might be 24 months, it could be 36, it could be 48 months. And every year, adjust your net burn such that this runway is always maintained. And you can adjust your net burn, you can reduce it through increasing revenue growth and reducing costs. And you can increase it if things are going well through faster hiring and more marketing. So we can make this explicit through numbers. I'm going to completely make these up. Let's say that you have a bank balance for your company of $10 million, and you want to keep runway for 24 months. Well, what that means is in year one, you can burn approximately $416,000 per month. That will give you 24 months of runway. After year one, by definition, because you had 24 months of runway, you'll have half the amount of cash left, you'll have about $5 million left. Now, here's the cool right. part adjust your net burn such that your new monthly burn is now $208,000. That's actually half of what it was in year right. one. Well, guess what? At that point, you now have 24 months of runway again. And the year after, wow. halve your burn again. And the year after, halve your burn again. And what this lets you do is to constantly maintain a horizon of runway. So you get that critical part of the profitability plan, which is the ability to walk away from any financing where you don't like the terms. But it also gives you the ability to constantly reinvest and to maximally grow the business. And the other cool thing about this approach Mm. is it's really simple to understand. And so everyone on your leadership team should easily be able to buy into this and everyone in the company should easily be able to buy into this. Yeah, yeah. Why aren't we hiring faster? Well, because it will take our runway lower than 24 months. Or why have we suddenly decided to hire faster? Well, it turns out that revenue was growing faster than we thought and we can now hire to keep our net burn to the point where we have 24 months of runway. And so it becomes this self-adjusting system.
1: What do you think is going to be the... um... Uh, the impact of this on on hiring, because obviously in the tech world, and especially in Silicon Valley, we very much operate in a bubble. Um, you know, the experience of of having a job and being in the market is very different. I think for a lot of engineers, specifically, there's such a a level of competition, and you've got huge companies like Google who are offering enormous amounts of money and great benefits packages to pull people in, and arguably that may be happening less. Um, as some of these companies are impacted. So what do you think, how do you think this is going to impact the ability for startups to be able to hire the right people at the right price as this recession progresses? So first of all, I think,
0: and this is very sad and very unfortunate, we'll see lots of startups struggle. Unfortunately, many may fold. Really talented right. people may be out of a job through no fault of their own. Right. There's going to be less capital in the ecosystem. Money in general will be less available. And what that means is, I think we'll start to see a certain rebalancing of what the talent markets look like. And arguably, they have been massively inflated for the last year or two. Right. And so we're already seeing this on platforms like AngelList and Hired in the last two weeks compared to even four or five weeks ago. There's a sudden influx of really fantastic people. And those people are going to find new roles at excellent companies, companies that have what it takes to weather this storm. Right. And so it'll be a rebalancing, I think, of especially the Bay Area, where we've had this period of unmitigated and probably unsustainable growth for an extremely long time, resulting in lots of unfortunate socioeconomic outcomes for example mm. for the city of san francisco where most of the people who work here and service the city can't actually afford to live
1: here and i don't think right.
0: that anyone would say that's a good thing
1: no i i agree with you and then just kind of wrapping up on this um there's a lot of talk right now about obviously a, a lot of people have been pushed into remote working uh, because they their offices are closing down. So people who are, who are less familiar with remote working um, have been asked to go and, and work from home. Um, and a lot of these people are arguably people who may fall into the the superhuman target persona of you know um, high performance um, email users and executives and and, and people such as that how do you think this this kind of potential boon of remote working is going to impact superhuman because you could you could arguably say this could potentially bring a lot a lot of new customers but there could also be a lot of distraction there and is this this predicted boon around uh, remote working actually going to happen or when people's offices open back up are people just going to go back to how they used to work what do you think about that
0: well i think as it relates to email we've seen some pretty interesting shifts in behavior as our customer base largely has transitioned to remote work. So overall Mm. email volume is up. But perhaps more interesting is the way that we're doing email has changed. We're starting earlier and we're finishing later. And I think what we can infer is that our work days are stretching out because there's no concrete start time anymore and there's no concrete end time. And we're all trying our best to be as available to our colleagues as we can. And so there's been this stretch of the workday. I'm not actually sure whether that's a good thing. I think it's probably something that we can all do for some period of time. But if this becomes our new normal, then we're going to have to have a serious think about how do we track, or not track, track is the wrong word, but how do we design ideal workdays when we're all Yeah, what's the balance of it all? Exactly. So I think that's that's one interesting thing. Uh, The other interesting thing is that in this COVID period, we've seen a reduction in mobile emails. So in Superhuman, we've seen 20 to 25% less emailing happening on phones and the, and the corresponding increase on desktop. So all of that behavior has shifted to desktop. And right. I think that, that kind of makes sense. You know, we're, we're no longer yeah. out and about. We're less on our phones than we used to be. And from yes. a personal perspective, I now go one or two days without actually looking at my phone. I have iMessage on my desktop. I have WhatsApp on my desktop. I I don't really need to look at my phone anymore. Uh, And I can say from my perspective, uh, I actually feel somewhat healthier for doing so. I'm no longer tied to, I'm still tied to one gadget, of course, I'm tied to the desktop or the laptop computer, but it's one less gadget that I'm tied to
1: yes well thumbs around the world are happy about about the lack of thumbing around on a on a on a mobile device which is not good for your hands um well this was uh this was really wonderful thank you so much rahul for coming on obviously people can go and find out more about superhuman um at superhuman.com and i will provide some links to 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 the pieces that we've talked about today and uh i wish you all the best with the company and to stay safe and well cool likewise
0: and to you